Hello and welcome to The Convex Conversation with me, journalist Helen Fosbury. To mark World Mental Health Day, it seems fitting to be in Sevenoaks in Kent for a chat with endurance runner and mental health activist Daniel Keeley. Dan has suffered with his own mental health and is bipolar, but over the last decade he's found ways to change the negatives to positives and in doing so help others struggling to speak out. One of the many physical challenges he's taken on to raise awareness is running from Rome to home, home being London, totally unsupported. That's 1,250 miles over 65 days alone. And Dan has just delivered his first TED Talk on the power of speaking up when we're suffering. It's a brave, emotional, courageous story told from the heart of his struggles with mental health and what helped him overcome his pain when he says he lost his mind 10 years ago. I'm not here to simplify, undermine, compare or contrast your pain and struggles with mine. Ultimately, you're the one who you spend 100% of your life with. And none of us will ever truly understand the intricacies of your own adversity. Instead, I'm simply here to be your wingman, your teammate, and to stand alongside you. To advocate, champion and reinforce the power of speaking up when we're suffering and to throw out a few life rafts to those of you who can't see a way through the storm. Dan, it's great to finally meet you and to be able to say in person congratulations on delivering what I thought was a really, really powerful TED Talk. How did it all go? Oh, Helen, thank you so much. I cannot believe that it was only three weeks ago when I was stepping onto that TED stage to deliver those 18 minutes. And I think as you saw in the TED Talk, I gave just as much passion, commitment and energy to the delivery of my words on that beautiful red carpet as I did to running those miles over those 65 majestic days from the Coliseum back to the London Eye. Um, it's interesting in the intro you say about how I was out there alone. It was a solo and self-supported running adventure, absolutely. But, you know, the adventure represented the culmination of this five-year journey of recovery. And I couldn't have done it without, you know, my friends, my family, so many loved ones behind the scenes. And I did have my dream team with me I'm pretty much on WhatsApp from start to finish. So, you know, yes, I was out there. I was the one putting one foot in front of the other, just me and my backpack. But, you know, there's a whole team behind the scenes. So, uh, yeah, I'm extremely lucky for the people that I have in my life. I'm really looking forward to actually hearing about the Rome to home as somebody who literally can't really run for a bus and I'm not actually not joking. It's awesome what you achieved and I'm looking forward to hearing how that all went and what motivated you and inspired you and kept you going. But I mean, first of all, when I looked at you down on that TED Talk stage, you really bared your soul out there. I thought it was brave, it was courageous. I know that you wanted to help other people by doing it. But what motivated you to take that pretty bold step? I think even today, the fact is that 12 men will have woken up this morning who won't be with us tomorrow. Another four men would have tried to take their life today. And that's just in the UK alone. And that is just one demographic. And for whatever reason, over the years, I felt so deeply connected to the fact that there are so many people who are suffering out there. Coupled with my lived experiences, which all started really in, in 2012, after being sexually abused as a child as well. So, you know, there is more to this whole story, of course, but for whatever reason, Helen, yeah, just always, you know, passionate over the years about sport, creativity and social impact. And the social impact piece is really being connected to the fact that, 
you know, the, the stats speak for themselves. There are a lot of, you know, people struggling out there, feeling isolated, alone, in a desperate place. Obviously, marking World Mental Health Day, which is fantastic, and the timing of which couldn't be better because we're, of course, going into the winter months where more people do struggle. So I just feel, you know, really proud to play my part in whatever way I can. And whether that's taking on these crazy running adventures or stepping onto uh, a small red carpet to deliver a message, as long as I'm being part of the conversation and I arrive at the end to look back knowing that I played my part, then, you know, I'll be happy with that. We'll obviously talk about your lived experiences in a moment, but the statistics that you mentioned there are shocking and heartbreaking. Interesting, I've heard those stats before about men. Do you think men find it harder than than women to say how they're feeling and perhaps to reach out and get help? Yes, I absolutely do. You know, there's some wonderful work being done around this conversation about men and mental health. And there's some you know, incredible organisations such as Movember and the Campaign Against Living Miserably who are all about men's mental health. Incredible work being done out there. But I think when we think back to our caveman times, if you think what happened back in the day where traditionally the males would go out and hunt and gather, and if anybody showed any weakness, then you're not valuable. For men to show weakness I think is still quite scary for a lot of males out there. And of course, this goes for anybody. You know, the stigma and the shame that often surrounds any conversation around mental health. We've still got a long way to go as a society to tackle that shame and stigma. But, you know, great things are happening. We're normalising the conversation. I'll be honest as well. I think a few years ago, I got asked to speak directly to that topic. And I was a bit hesitant. I'm thinking, you know, I'm no expert in men's mental health. I've never pretended to be. But they said, Dan, you are a male. You're a father. You're a husband. You're a brother. You're a nephew. And you're putting your heart and soul out there. You're speaking about the power of vulnerability and you're being demonstrative. And I think after a few years, that's now sunk in. As I say, it's just a real privilege to be part of that conversation. But we've got a long way to go. Um, and I think times are changing. You know, I think more men are showing that it's okay to not to be okay. And I'm pretty excited about the future, I'll be honest. Oh, I'm glad you're excited about the future. I love the line that you used in the TED Talk. Courageous conversations lead to the most beautiful destinations. It must be quite empowering to be able to have that courageous conversation. It takes guts. I know it takes guts. And your conversation took my breath away. I've watched it quite a few times now. Can you take us back down to Northern Italy and when things really came to a head for you? Yeah, it was in 2012 where I put a lot of pressure on myself over the years, Helen, to find an occupation where I could channel all my the best use of my energy and my passions into a role. And then suddenly in 2012, got offered this incredible opportunity as a community manager and a partnerships manager for a, a snow sports charity that changed the lives of underprivileged young people by taking them away to the mountains. Having qualified as a skiing instructor myself, always passionate about sports development and wanting to make an impact, you can imagine how this was written for me. And you think this is energy. You should have seen how I felt back in January 2012. And I felt in many senses that this huge weight got lifted off my, off my shoulders. And in simple terms, over the course of those six months in 2012, I got obsessed about helping these young people. And I negated everything else. My health, my relationships, people closest to me in my lives. I was so tunnel visioned on changing the lives of these young people who were really struggling. You know, these are hard to reach, underprivileged young people caught up in gang culture and knife crime. And I knew that for every £500, we could get them away to the mountains. So I was just so obsessed about this. And then over those six months, seemingly, you know, this lack of sleep and this adrenaline, this dopamine and these grandiose ideas building up about changing their lives. I thought, well, I've got 10 times the capacity here. Why don't I try and apply this energy to easing the suffering of the UK? And then if I was going to go that far, why wouldn't I try and change the world? 
Obviously, the alarm bells are going off from friends and family. They're saying, why don't you just take a break, book a two-week trip to Italy with Georgie, my wife, and just go and switch off. But using the analogy of a Formula One car, it was almost as though my foot was planted on the accelerator. I was going at 200 miles an hour and I just could not slow myself down. It was too far gone. And by the time we touched down in Italy, I believed that I was the chosen one. I believed that I was the one who'd been selected to ease all of the world's suffering. I was making promises I couldn't keep. I was giving away all my possessions. I believed I'd written a new age Bible fit for modern times. And obviously the number one priority for Georgie was to get me to a safe space whilst letting our family know that something wasn't right. So we pack up our small white Fiat 500. Obviously we're in Italy. <laughs> so we pack up <laughs> what our- What else would you be in? Hey? Exactly, Luigi. So we pack up Luigi and we start heading over to this uh, specialist hospital near Lake Garda. And uh, this compulsion, this energy, it was almost like Red Bull was pumping through my veins. And you know, my, my I, was, I had so much agitated energy that I had to get out of my system. And it just got to the point where I thought there's so much suffering in the world going on right Right now, what is the most impactful way that I can stop some of this suffering? And at that time, it was to scramble out the car. You can imagine what Georgie's going through. Incredibly scary. Scramble out the car, start running down the hard shoulder of this motorway at rush hour, strip off just to my khaki shorts and start stepping onto the slow lane, the middle lane, and then the fast lane, wow. making the traffic screech to a stop. And I was stood there arms outstretched, tears of pure, what I felt was euphoria, untapped, unrestrained, triple filtered mania of just this euphoric feeling of this sense that we were going to start again as a global society and just stop and ask ourselves, where are we really heading? And if we could all learn to slow down and follow our hearts, then it potentially could lead to beautiful places. Of course, the way that I was going about delivering the message was not to be recommended. And uh, it wasn't too much longer where the you know the police officers are there and the ambulance crew are there i'm trying to recruit them to become my new chief medical and security officers you know i thought we were going to set up this new headquarters at the coliseum but my mood said reached speeds and heights which exceeded freddie mercury's at wembley or ayrton centers on the streets of monaco it was just so far gone and uh ended up in psychiatric wards and georgie must have been terrified i'm guessing petrified how did she react when you were there doing all of that just scared i think Georgie is the luckiest thing that has ever happened to me, the fact that she's in my world. She's an intensive care nurse and she immediately knew what to do. And, you know, there was no history of any mental health conditions in our family, in either of our families. This was all new to her. And there she, I can still picture her on the, on the side of that motorway, petrified, but these lovely Italians supported her at the time, but she just put the cogs in motion. And my mother flew out from the UK. Her mother flew out from being on holiday in Italy, I think at the time. She made arrangements to fly up and be with us. How lucky am I to have her by my side? And, you know, she would be a fascinating guest actually to tell her side of the story Gosh, in time to come. I'm sure she would. And so you were taken to a psychiatric ward and what happened to you there, Dan? It was actually a beautiful space that I was lucky enough to be fast-tracked to, but it was a really confusing time. A split second earlier, I believed I was the chosen one, believing we were going to set up this new headquarters at the Coliseum, having so much conviction in my words and my thoughts and these ideas that were going to change the world. And then I was waking up after 14 hours at a time of sleeping because I've been strapped down to these beds and pumped full of drugs. Um, I'd lost so much weight, Helen, over this time. I was a scarecrow. I hadn't slept in six months properly. My fuel tank was empty, yet I was running red hot. So they needed to slow me down and put some weight back on. And so these drugs um, really, really played their part. So I remember waking up after like 14 hours in this 
it's almost like my gearbox was broken because I just couldn't understand why we weren't in Rome. And then I'd be incredibly angry because I was just so hungry. And then I'd be guzzling everything. They'd just be, keep bringing me trays of food and I'd be just demolishing everything. And then 10 minutes later, conked out. Another 14 hours, repeat, for two and a half weeks. And I met some fascinating characters in there. You know, normal people, businessmen, all sorts of people who just ended up with a bad stroke of luck and ended up in the same circumstance as I did. And um, very confusing, two and a half weeks out in Italy. And uh, it wasn't long before we had some help from the UK where two nurses came to uh, triage me back, back to the United Kingdom. Was that at the point, Dan, as well, when you were diagnosed with bipolar? That came in London. So two and a half weeks out in Italy, escorted back to the UK. Apparently I flew first class in British Airways. I didn't know anything about it because I was drugged up. So last on, first off the plane. I think only the Royal Family get that these days, don't they? Anyway, arrive at Gatwick. My family were there, fast tracked to the Maudsley Hospital in South London. And uh, I hate to say it, but even though that's one of the most specialist uh, psychiatric units in the United Kingdom, the facilities were pretty disgusting. It was plastic. It was cold. It was damp. It has been forgotten as a facility. They're all doing their best. And the other thing I'd say to that experience for, you know, the two and a half weeks I was there as well, before getting the diagnosis of bipolar, were that were between the 30 members of staff on shift, there were probably five that really treated each of you as a human being. And I'm not pointing fingers necessarily. I get it. Everyone's trying their best. There's all sorts of different personalities and challenges in these facilities. But the human experience and being treated like a human and being listened to when we wanted to speak by those five members of staff in particular were heavenly. And one member of staff, Dale, I remember he recognised that I had a lot of energy and I love sport. And attached to the Maudsley is a, is a gym, just a sports hall. And he got the rotor and highlighted every single time there was a half hour break in between any schedule. And he just escorted me down to the sports hall quite a lot just to chuck a basketball and run laps in the sports hall. And that's just what I needed whilst the medication was being sorted out, whilst I was being visited by friends and family. So after six weeks, pretty much in total between Italy and the UK, you know, it was quite clear the diagnosis was bipolar disorder. But yet you still say at that point after the treatment and being there that you felt in a deep black crevasse. So you weren't through it at that point, were you? There was still tough stuff to come. I don't think I was ever through it until 2017, actually, five years on. The psychiatric wards were a very confusing six weeks. To then be discharged, I remember the journey home. It was only a 10-minute drive from the Maudsley to our shared house that we were in, East Dulwich. Myself, Georgie and my mother with this new diagnosis of bipolar. And here we are. In many senses, it felt like we were flung out into the wild. It felt I was discharged too soon. And a couple of things happened. One is that immediate feeling of gravitas really hit me. I was like, oh my word, I can't trust my brain anymore. I can't trust myself anymore. Therefore, what is the point of speaking? What is the point of channeling any energy into anything worthwhile if I simply can't trust my own brain anymore? And so for the next six months, I was bedbound. Um, I always say it felt like that massive energy that was pumping out into the world for you know six relentless months. It, it almost came right back at me. It was the universe saying that is not the way to go about it, and it was forcing me into my mattress. And you know, I remember trying to brush my teeth every day. It was very hard to get out of bed, and then I guilt tripped myself to get out of bed at four forty-five before Georgie got home, just to pretend that I'd been up that day because of my own shame of being in that place. 
I was very much in that crevasse, uh, you know, for six months. I think the six months following being discharged were the darkest time of my life. And you had pretty dark thoughts as well, didn't you? I did. I went to grab the car keys to take a drive and have a look over the edge of a bridge that I'd chosen. Uh, God knows what would have happened had the car keys had been there, but they were hidden. Georgie, she hid the car keys because she knew me so well in a time where I didn't know myself. And, uh, you know, Grace, my counsellor, she was my lifesaver combined and my family. Um, fortunately, I was critical. Therefore, I had counselling three times a week initially. And Grace saved my life. I think you said in the TED Talk that, you know, that motorway bridge was your darkest hour. But at the same time, Grace came into your world and that counselling made a massive difference, didn't it? It did. <sighs> It did. Um, you, know, but, you know, I think back to those sessions, oh, I think back to those sessions now, I think the speaking part on my side didn't happen for three months, I don't think. I turned up to these sessions in all sorts of states of mind because the medication took three years, three years to find the right medication that was going to work for me. And uh, it was almost like my chassis was broken, you know, my gearbox was all over the place. I was burnt out. I was completely burnt out. You know, there was no mental or physical capacity to engage with anything. And so, yes, I attended these sessions. I was exhausted and debilitated. And so I think it took three months before I started really responding to what Grace was trying to make me think about. What she did, which was incredible, was just made, made sure that I was reminded that I was loved and I was valued and there was always people to listen to me when I was ready to talk. And that was enough, actually, in those first three months. But then with the patience and the, and the time, continuing the sessions, willing on my part to show up and at least give it a go, I've got to take some credit for that. The speaking and the reflection came and the strategy, you know, talking about how I was spending my time and my energy and my attention leading up to Italy and how I could potentially think about things in a more structured way looking forward. And in particular, spotting the early warning signs. You know, leading up to Italy, it was a lack of sleep. It was a lack of exercise. It was a lack of decent nutrition. It was spending and excessive speech. And those five warning lights that were coming up on my dashboard pre-Italy, I didn't pay any attention to. And man, believe me that I do now. I'm sure you do. And what do you say to people, Dan? I know you do a lot of motivational speaking and you use your very personal story to try and help other people. What advice do you give to people? Well, not advice. We've used that clip at the beginning where you say that you're the wingman. And I like that description of you being the wingman. You can't tell anybody exactly what to do. But what help can you offer? What can people draw from your story who are suffering and perhaps afraid or embarrassed to speak up? I think the first thing is to say that I know how hard it is. I think we all do. And I think so many people listening to this conversation will know how hard it is to find the courage and the energy to speak up in our darkest moments. There's a few things that I will say from my lived experiences and the conversations I've been lucky enough to be a part of now for almost 10 years, is that when I started speaking up about what I'd been through, and it started one-to-one, -one, Helen, at a friend's barbecue a year later, where he just said, you know, Dan, we don't really know what happened to you last year. I remember it started with one single conversation 
where I was just very open about my experiences. And I remember it was a friend's barbecue and suddenly we had six people around us listening to what I was saying because they said, we, nobody talks like this. <laughs> and, you know, I was just very happy to be open about my experiences. And three incredible things started to happen when I did. I felt much lighter every time I spoke openly about what I'd been through. It was almost like the shame was lifted off my shoulders and I retold the story. And of course, every time I did, of course it makes sense that if any of us pushed our minds to the limit, such as I did, it was only going to end one way. So I felt much lighter. I built an even greater support network around me, you included, I hate to say now. Really? More people who just have my back and would be, be happy to tell me if they thought that my mood was either heightened again or going the other way. I'm sure. My dream team. You know, so this, again, 10 years of this, Ellen, but I'm lucky to have so many people around me. But it was a reflection of the fact that I was being open, that I was building an even greater support network around me. And the third most amazing thing that really started to happen from 2013 onwards was that I was giving permission for other people to speak up about their own experiences. And that was just by going first and showing some vulnerability on my part. And I've never pretended to have any of the answers. All I can do is stand in my lane and share... Hmm, Stand Let's in not right stand lane. in your lane. No. Let's stand in the right one. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, all I can do, you know, is speak from experience and share my story in the hope that it gives hope to other people. But progressively over the years, that has provided the safe space for others to find the answers that they already have within them. You know, I've never pretended to say I know exactly how to fix you. Most people don't want to be fixed. They just want to be seen and heard and valued. And so, so often, if we can provide those safe and supportive spaces for courageous conversations to flourish, whether there is no stigma, there's no shame. Just within this hour, we're having this conversation. We can talk about something completely different afterwards. And if we can provide those safe spaces with boundaries for these courageous conversations to flourish, then you know I think we're going to head to a beautiful world where everybody feels empowered to speak up. I think Prince Harry did his bit as well on that front. There are a lot of people I've spoken to in my business world from CEOs down saying that the fact that he spoke openly about his mental health has given them the courage to either get some help or speak about it. Do you think that was a positive that somebody of that level in terms of role model was so honest? Without question. And, you know, the number one resource I can share in the corporate world is the Inside Out leaderboard. There are now hundreds of thousands of senior leaders around the world putting their hand up to say, I have struggled with my mental health, but here I am. And it started with the CEO of uh, HSBC for Europe, I believe, who put his hand up to say, I'm willing to put myself out there. And this is the direction we want to go in as a team and as a culture within our organisation to show that it is okay if you're struggling. And we're going to build that support network around you and create that culture where it's okay to be open when we're struggling. So it is happening. And again, with World Mental Health Day, just pay attention to the incredible conversations that will happen around this whole period, because there is so many incredible role models doing likewise. And we know about the celebrities that have been out there to say it, from the Stephen Fry's to the Robbie Williams. You know, there's so many people, the, the Ruby Waxes. You know, there's incredible personalities out there sharing their stories and saying, I've been there. And we do need those role models. But it can also start as a brother. It can start as a family member. Start small. And, you know, I sincerely hope that when Maxwell grows up, he's two and a half years old, my son, love him to bits. But when he grows up, I'm hoping that he will see that his dad has been there. He's been happy to be open about his experiences. And, you know, I can provide that support and safe space for him as well. So, you know, I've got high hopes for future generations as well. We've got to give you mum a mention somewhere. You said <laughs> she lived with you when you came back from Italy. Has she been a big support to you? 
She's been world class, our mother. She has always taught the three of us, my brother and my sister, to follow our hearts and just to go for what you want in life. You know, she's been an incredible support for us and she's had her struggles over the years in, in different ways. Yeah, God bless her. She is world class. Now, the conversation I've been looking forward to that didn't come out on your TED Talk stage is Rome to home. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So you set off from the Colosseum, 1,250 miles, unsupported over 65 days. I want to say you're mad fool, but that sounds inappropriate (laughs) given the conversation we've had. But what what inspired that run? Oh, Rome to home. Rome to home. It was an oil painting. You know, it was a 65-day oil painting that I was lucky enough to create and live in back in 2017. In terms of what inspired the adventure, you know, I saw over those five years after coming out of the psychiatric wards that it's all well and good me sharing my story to, you know, to corporate teams or, you know, to to the audience or festival here and there and one-to-one, of course, and to help people. That was great. But I had this urge, you know, I knew that I could do something pretty big with this whole chapter that I've been through. And actually, to answer your question in the best way possible, I'm a huge fan of Viktor Frankl. And so many of us know his story, but his defining line is that when suffering finds meaning, it ceases to be suffering. And so for me, after five years of having gone through this unique set of experiences, being part of these courageous conversations after five years and really paying attention to his teachings, when suffering finds meaning, it ceases to be suffering. I wanted to find and honour the meaning that I found in my own suffering and to also test whether the courage that I'd been gifted from my experiences were as strong as I believe they were. And at the same time, to really shine a light on the facts, as we said at the start, there are so many men, people, human beings around the world that are suffering. And if I can use this platform to bring my story full circle, create a really powerful, visual, life-affirming adventure challenge, which is both a physical challenge, of course, but to share my mental journey using this platform as the canvas to do so and raise money for charity, then that sounded pretty good to me. And I was actually opposite the London Eye when I came up with the idea. And it was one of those times in my life, just like being a skiing instructor, where as soon as the idea comes into your head, it almost felt like I'd completed it. So and I remember being opposite the London Eye and the idea of Rome to home popped into my head in big neon lights with the fireworks going off at the same time. And the fireworks went off in my head. So with a year's preparation to get ready, leading up to the 25th of August, 7am at the Colosseum in Rome, 2017, I was good to go. You've made the hairs on the back of my arms stand up when you say that, that you're at the Colosseum ready to go. What on earth went through your mind as you stood at one of the most beautiful places on earth about to set off? <laughs> I was just so excited. So I was ready to go. I almost felt like as soon as I was about to set off, I could breathe because it was. It took a year to put this whole thing together. Being in the gym to build some uh, lower body strength, actually, to get my medication in the right place, to get the social media in the right place and my trackers, in my live tracker that people could follow me, the fundraising pages, communicating the message, building the support network back home, all of this stuff. And then suddenly I knew that as soon as I get going, that's the easy part. But one foot in front of the other for the next 1,250 miles, plus going back regularly to collect the GoPro. Gosh, and how yeah. do you keep going? I mean, I know you're an endurance runner, but how many miles a day were you doing? And how do you deal with those toughest moments where you think, oh my goodness, I've got X miles left. I'm not sure I can do this. Mm. What? Give me a sense. Perhaps you don't feel like that. What, give me a sense of what it's like there when you're out there and how on earth you keep going for that length of time. 
I did my homework leading up to the adventure. I connected with other adventurers out there who gave me some top tips about the kit. So, you know, I felt like I'd set off that I'd absolutely nailed my kit. And I've got to say, even from start to finish, I didn't get a single blister because I had exactly the right socks that suited me. So Salomon helped me out as well. So my kit was all in the right place before setting off. I had peace of mind that I had everything I needed with me, including a sleeping bag, including my bivy bag. Were you carrying this stuff? Yeah. Oh so I had my 32 litre backpack with my water on, on my front. So a litre and a half on my chest because I didn't want to take the backpack off too much to refill the water. Bearing in mind, I'm setting off in August, heading into Tuscany. It was hot. And then approaching the Alps, of course, where the conditions change. So I spent a lot of time on Google Earth before the adventure, visualising the heat, the terrain and everything else. So I really visualised the adventure. I can't tell you the amount of times that I flew over Google Earth to picture this whole adventure. So there was the power of visualisation, which really went in my favour. I did my homework with my kits and preparation, medication and everything leading up. And then certainly over those 65 days, there were definitely a few times where I felt, gosh, this is tough. And I would say there were two defining moments when that happened. The second in reverse order, was when I was up through France, you know, I'd, I'd gone up Colosseum, Vatican, Tuscany, Siena, up to the Alps, up and over the Great St. Bernard Pass, Mont Blanc in the background, dropping down to Lake Geneva, up and out of Switzerland. And then there was this very repetitive stretch between Lake Geneva and Paris, where every day felt like the same. And I remember one distinctive day, there was an 18 mile straight road through this forest and I could see the city in the distance where I was headed to. And it just took forever to get there because it was just a straight line and it was pretty boring actually. And I, I just, my mind just wandered to the wrong places because I was bored and I just had to get there. There was another time where my uncle came out for 24 hours and disappeared again. And on the day he left, I was basically stranded on the side of this grim motorway a week south of Paris in the middle of nowhere. And it was just a dark, dank day. But, you know, it was only a couple of hours. It wasn't that bad. So how many miles roughly were you running every day? I was averaging 20 miles a day, almost a marathon per day. And what I will say to the mileage is that, again, this goes back to the power of having great people around you. Because on day 15, this other challenging moment was when I was pushing myself way too hard, too fast, too soon, both physically and mentally. So I remember on day 15, I woke up and I had five separate messages from people saying, Dan, your video last night seemed a bit fast-paced. Are you okay? You're averaging 28 miles a day already. You don't need to be. You've got your schedule. And you've got the five days which are scheduled in for other people to join you. So there's no point going too fast. Anyway, they were absolutely right. But essentially, I was hypermanic. So, you know, I hit this point where I was pushing myself. I was too excited. You know, I was loving this whole adventure, this painting unfolding in front of me. All the Italians looking after me, this generosity. It was incredible. And then uh, I had to really listen to them. I had to drop the ego, really listen to what they were telling me, take extra medication. Fortunately, two friends came out with their bikes to cycle alongside me for a few days. So everything happens with such purity and generosity from start to finish. And, you know, again, it's really testament to everybody around me. And when you're running that many miles a day, when you get into bed at night, are your legs really hurting? Or have you trained so well that you don't get that kind of pain? I remember on day three, I felt like my legs felt pretty heavy. And a lot of people said the same thing with these things. I don't think anything can really prepare you for setting out. You know, you can do your best in the lead up, but nothing can truly prepare you for what your body is going to be experiencing. So I remember on day three was probably the day where my body accepted now what we're going to be doing. Yes. <laughs> so this is what we're doing, mate. Exactly. <laughs> so, get so, so get in line because we're doing this, you know, and I wasn't going to fail and I was going to look after myself from start to finish. But, you know, honestly, from then onwards, 
I just looked after myself. I took breaks when I needed to, plenty of hydration, no problem walking every so often if I needed to. I wanted to run. Yeah, I did my homework leading up to the adventure, but I would say, especially beyond day 15, when I was reminded about what really matters most with this whole adventure, remember your why as to as to why you're doing this. I think beyond that particular checkpoint, I thought, okay, I've got this, as long as I really do listen to people around me. And especially, you, you can imagine, after crossing the Alps and then the flat France section, I thought, okay, I've got this in the bag, as long as I just look after myself and listen to some Queen, Art Through France, to keep the energy up. <laughs> and, do you uh, have music all the time? When you're yeah, always, I did, actually. Yeah. yeah, I did. I did. I loved it. And even through the Alps, uh, there was a random Disney Pixar song that came on. I ended up listening to Disney Pixar through <laughs> the Alps, and I felt like the biggest kid in the world, dancing through the Alps. It was incredible. You've talked a lot through this conversation conversation about support from family and friends and I know your brother's been a big support too and you had quite a special moment on your run thanks to your brother didn't you? I had two special moments on my run with my brother and sister. My sister crossed the channel at 2.30 in the morning to come out and meet me and surprise me at Dieppe to cross the channel again to go back on the ferry so my big sister was waiting for me at the English Channel. Little did I know. My uncle flew out to the top of the Alps and to surprise me as an airline pilot he flew into Milan and came up to the Alps to join me. But you've mentioned my brother and it's pretty unique and who else gets this again but the Queen? I had my own flyover from the Red Arrows as I was approaching Paris, thanks to the fact that my brother was a Red Arrows pilot at the time. And the story was that I just clocked over a thousand miles on my adventure. So on the same day that I record my Forrest Gump comedy video because I just clocked a thousand miles, on the same day I get a tweet and a video message from the Red Arrows who had just finished the tour and they were refueling in southern Italy saying, Red 2's little brother, we're proud of you. You've just clocked over a thousand miles. We're all looking forward to seeing you back in the UK. Go get them. And I remember watching that and I was thinking, hold on, you're in southern Italy. I'm approaching Paris. The stars might be aligning here. Message my brother. And it turned out if I could get myself five miles up the road to this particular pin where we thought we could meet up, they'll see if they can put some smoke on. So there I was, two friends came out at this point. So I was buzzing to get to this point. Crystal clear blue sky, looking up, waiting, waiting, nothing. And then nine streams of glorious silver smoke coming out the back of the jets with the sun beaming through the top of it. Wow. All for me. Oh my goodness, that must have been beautiful. I hope you got the right colour smoke on, just saying. (laughs) (laughs) It could have been orange to match my backpack. That that would have been nice, but they did pretty well. And uh, yeah, definitely I've got my big brother to to really thank for that. What a treat. You and the Queen, hey? Even the Queen. So you get to the London Eye. How are you feeling? Emotional, pumped, relieved, drenched in champagne. Nice. (laughs) I felt like I could breathe. I was a mess. Pure emotion. And it was this sense of togetherness. And, all, and, and, you know, there were 100 and I think I counted, there's about 155 people that were probably there that day, including just the tourists out in London thinking, you know, what's happening here? There's this huge V, uh, you know, leading up to the London Eye. What's this all about? And then suddenly this guy with red, white and blue, I had the flag out and my, this wave of other runners and cyclists behind me. <laughs> you know, I'm welling up thinking about it, but just arriving at the London Eye thinking... This is the culmination of this whole journey. This, you know, perhaps I was supposed to go through all of these experiences because I'm looking around me and I've got tears of emotion and champagne, you know, trickling down my my face, but I'm looking around and there are so many tears. Amazing achievement. Mm. It really was. Why you compose yourself a minute, because I can feel the emotion that you felt when you got there. 
exercise has really played a massive role, hasn't it? Because even before you did your TED talk, you just ran a cool 100 kilometres across the South Downs on one of the hottest days in Britain. Has that helped at the exercise side of things mentally to keep you strong and focused? Without question. Yeah, endurance running for me has been a beautiful uh, undertaking since Renter Home. I never really identified as a runner before Renter Home. You know, I was always passionate about sport, so I just had to fine tune it for the adventure. But certainly since Renter Home and really clicking into ultra running has been a, a real blessing on both sides, both for my mental well-being and because of my mental well-being. So for my mental well-being, you know, if I do push myself to go out there and hit the trails, I sleep better. I eat better and I'm far more relaxed. And I'm proud of being able to physically and mentally do these things. And then on the flip side, you know, I'll be very honest, in the lead up to the 100 kilometres, which was across the South Downs, it was really, it was always going to be very, very hot that day with the, the white sun reflecting off the white chalk. And I didn't really sleep too well in the days leading up to it. And this is one of those interesting conversations. And it's one of those unique times where I do believe you can harness some of the positive traits that come with the bipolar package. Because during those 100 kilometres, I did use that heightened energy to finish in the top 10 on paper. You know, I managed to use that sort of heightened, almost nervous energy, but channel it in a way where I could put it to good use in this sense, running 100 kilometres. I slept better afterwards. I took the week off more or less afterwards. You know, I had some very simple A to B projects to tick off, but generally I took a lot of downtime, which has only come from experience and being really intentional with managing my energy and my medication and having the people around me. But certainly between the ultra running and the mental health, the two go hand in hand without question. It's interesting because you described bipolar as both a blessing and a burden. And is that perhaps what you meant in a way by the blessing side of it? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not easy. Of course it's not. And I, you know, always think about bipolar and the parallels between Formula One. It might feel like you're hitting every apex, but of course... None of us can hit every apex perfectly all the time. But if, if every so often you can use that sort of heightened energy, that creative energy that can come with the package to really hit that sweet spot when we need to, which we all do at times in life, when we've got these key moments or projects or talks or adventures that we want to, you know, tick off successfully. But it comes with a caveat because 90% of the time you have to be very, very careful with bipolar disorder. And none of these feelings that we've shared about being on that motorway, my mind took me to Nirvana, but it's not worth pursuing because of what comes next. So, you know, I have to manage this condition. You know, it's a condition I live with for life. But fortunately, as I've mentioned, you know, I still take medication quite happily today, a very small amount to help me sleep and eat and exercise and what have you. The people in my life, simplicity and minimalism, being open about my experiences, pursuing my passions and knowing that I'm playing my part, this sense of meaning as well. All of this has come from my experiences. It's all come from the meaning that I've developed from my suffering. But yeah, bipolar is a condition. It can be a beast and it's an extremely challenging one, not just for those that live with the condition, but of course, the people who care for that person with bipolar, it's not easy. And ask any one of my family members, they'll tell you that I've snapped at them way too often because I've been in a state of hypermania and it's, it's not attractive. Challenge-wise now, you have Mont Blanc in your sights. I've got three challenges in my mind. One is Mont Blanc. So the UTMB, the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc, is 100 miles around Mont Blanc, as you do. And it's the Super Bowl of ultra running. 
And they are my superheroes. It's incredible what these ultra athletes can go out there and achieve. You've also got the 100K, 50 mile and 50K. So we'll see which one I end up doing, hopefully next year. But I now have accrued the points to enter the ballot, to enter the UTMB around Mont Blanc. It'll be incredible. That It'll be incredible. amazing. Do you know where I'd like to end with this? You're such a great talker and I, and I can see why you do your motivational speaking. I'd like to end with you on that red carpet at the TED Talk crouched down, head in hands, as you received an extraordinary standing ovation. What did that feel like for you, Dan? I left nothing on that stage. And it was a beautiful mix of relief, alignment with a sense of what I'm supposed to be doing here, and delivery. I've got a sales proud of what I've just delivered, and exhaustion. I left nothing on that stage, as you saw. I gave everything to that audience and had to forget the fact that there were a couple of cameras there as well. But I was so fully present with those hundreds of people in the audience and the other seven speakers backstage who were right there by my side. And my wife was in the audience as well, Georgie. I left nothing on that stage, just pure relief, emotion, and just a sense of gratitude, I think, above all else. And if people want to tune into that TED Talk, where can they find it, Dan? Punching my name on YouTube. Take a breath before you do and enjoy it and let me know what you think. I'd love to connect with anybody who it resonates with. And of course, if I can be of service to any of you listening to this, then it'll be a real pleasure. Fantastic. Thank you so much for making time today. And I feel very privileged that I've had a one-on-one. Should we go for a run? Uh, oh, crumbs. Maybe. <laughs> You're challenging me now. I've just, I've just seen a bus where we could oh uh, use that as some motivation. I'd rather go for a ski. You're a ski instructor, aren't you? Much rather go for a ski, but okay, we'll go and run for a bus. But thank you, Dan. Arrange a ski trip sometimes. Oh, okay. Now you're talking. Now you're talking. You've been listening to endurance runner, motivational speaker and mental health activist, Dan Keeley, who can now add TED Talk speaker to his resume. I hope you felt inspired listening to Dan's story. And if you'd like to hear the full TED Talk, as Dan says, it's available on YouTube. And also, if you do need to contact him, then he's all over social media too. So you don't need me to tell you how to do that. There are more than 70 Convex conversations in our library now, which you can download at convex.podbean.com or search the Convex conversation on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, YouTube, or simply ask Alexa. I'll be back next week with another great guest. So see you then.